0: The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Zoomies! Welcome back to another installment. Today we welcome the currently separating Major Drew Whitmey to the show. He is an Academy grad that went on to fly the CV-22 Osprey. He is also well-known down at the airfield here at the Academy as an instructor pilot. We touch on topics including what exactly makes the Osprey special, understanding the culture of resourcefulness within SOCOM, he tells us some things they don't really tell you until you separate, and lots more. This episode is one of a two-part recording, so make sure to check out the follow-up. Tune in for all the details. You're cleared up. Major with me, thanks for coming on. We're here on a what is this? An M nine? Hopefully, we have a few M day listeners, M day soaring team listeners. We got a we got an old um, what's it called? Soaring instructor pilot. Oh
1: uh, yeah 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 yeah. So, soaring, soaring IP officer. Uh, yeah.
0: He gave me my first, He gave me my dollar ride. So Major with me, do you mind getting into your background about yourself, where you're from, what you've done?
1: Yeah. Uh, hey. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Um, so my my background. Uh, I I started aviation actually in high school. Uh, got my private pilot's license uh, through a summer program, uh, and a- aviation really spoke to me in terms of something that I could uh, that was a discipline that I could apply myself to early, uh, and study a ton in, and it had a ton of growth opportunity, and seemed you know it, it had a lot of job opportunity in the military and civilian side. So, um, something I applied myself to fairly early on. Uh, from there, the, the sort of logical conclusion, uh, was, was Air Force Academy. It was something that I had had my eyes set on, uh, through high school. Um, did the application process, nomination, all that fun stuff came here, uh, studied, uh, computer engineering. Uh, So Mm. (laughs) I spent quite a bit of my time. Didn't, uh, didn't actually do a ton of aviation programs as a cadet. Uh, I did, the jump program, just five jumps and decided that, uh, staying in the aircraft was better for me than than (laughs) jumping out of it. Uh, it, yeah, man, my first couple jumps terrified me. Um, and I, you know, got through the five was excited, but glad to be done, uh, and, and ready to move on. Did the powered flight program as well. Was that when I was here, um, more for, I think it was more for a, a way to sort of reorient myself towards aviation again, uh, prior to go to pilot training uh graduated uh went to went to pilot training at that point uh there was essentially no like no backup in pilot training so i want to say you know may i end of may i graduated had 60 days and i was pretty much starting academics and in class by like september um Hmm. so it was it was a pretty quick turnaround uh went to went to ifs ift in pueblo uh, and then went into the T6 pretty quickly after that. But before, if I remember right, before the end of the year, it was like November, uh, October, November time frame. I was already in class studying the T6 and, and going through academics. In that
0: like Pueblo phase, is that something that it's the, however long you take? Or is there like a pipeline of like this is how long the class is, the course takes?
1: Yeah. There, so at that time, and, and I can't speak too much of how it is now. I, I can't imagine it's changed all that much, though is um, there is a syllabus, right? So you have a certain number of rides you're expected to complete and then pass a check right at the end of it to show that you you have the capability of, of, of getting into serious professional flying. Um, the, the, the aptitude is there. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the skills aren't there yet, they're looking for the, the capability of you passing a more advanced program, right? Um, and then sending you off to pilot training. Okay. Uh, for me, because I did have some previous flying experience, I was able to um, uh, what's called proficiency advance, uh, which is where they say, "Hey, your skill level already meets the end of phase okay. uh, criteria, so we're going to move you to that end of phase, and then we'll get you into the next phase and see if your skills are still high enough where we can push you on to the next phase." Okay. So, so you can there there is an option to skip, um, you know, to skip rides if you're doing well enough. Because I had some experience and I had about. Oh, gosh, I, I probably had 75 to 80 hours uh, of flight time already under my pocket. Mm-hmm. It, it came back to me pretty quickly, small airplane flying. Um, so I, I did well enough where I was able to skip quite a bit of the training and get, get done and get back back home to Texas. uh To, to, Del, to Del Rio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more, uh, validated a, a portion of it, a portion of it. I mean, you're, you're still expected to go to the check ride um, mm-hmm. and perform, right? You're still held to the same standard, so. Um, now I know that there is a, and I don't know if they're doing that right now, but some, uh, actually I do know they they are doing that right now. If you're a private pilot, um, uh, Jared Bachman, one of my lieutenants uh, down at the field, he, uh, it, I think has validated at least some portion of IFT, if not the whole thing. Okay. Um, so, cause they were talking about class dates for him r- regardless. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so got through IFT, uh, I'm not going to say it was, a uh, ex, you know, a fun experience, but it was an experience. Uh, and then moved on to pilot training, which was just a, a crazy blast of a time. Um, and going through T sixes, uh, I, I had thought about doing the helicopter thing for a bit. Um, wasn't really sure much about it. I had a, a couple of reservists, um, Black Hawk pilots or Pave Hawk pilots who uh, sat me, you know, sat me down, pulled me aside, realized that I was interested in helicopters and, and uh, showed me some, some footage of, of helicopter flying that, that really spiked my interest uh, pretty hard, uh, me and a couple other guys in my class. So we, um, we went to our flight commander pretty soon after that, uh, told him, hey, uh, I, you know, we're, we're really interested in helicopter flying. Uh, our flight commander said, "Great. Uh, we're trying to make more fighter pilots, uh, so the you know prove to me that you can perform, and we'll talk about trying to get you what you want." Um, and that was that's something that I'll I'll bring up my first little piece of advice for for future pilot trainees is, um, be you know be open and honest and 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 communicate humbly and well and often to your to your flight leadership. Uh, At at pilot training um, they can move mountains if if you're if you're a performer uh, if you're humble about it If they like you they can they can move mountains to to try to get you headed the way you want to go You know god bless my flight commander. He he was willing to to bend over backwards to do a lot of favors for us Um, We were you know according to him We were a great class and we deserved it uh, and we worked hard for it, Um, but the he brought uh, out of our class of 31 32 31 uh, he brought I think three or four um, heli- or I think three three helicopter slots just to our class which was like unheard of mm-hmm. for a single a single flight which was half a class um, a single flight to get three helicopter slots at that time uh, for one for one drop was almost unheard of um, so he he really helped us out in that regard so. Uh, was really excited about that. Ended up turning and, and going to Fort Rucker, um, Alabama for helicopter training. This was this was back when you do T six first, and then it's a it's a track like you track T thirty eight, you track T one, or you track helicopters. Um, went through Fort Rucker was uh, was a blast. It was a blast. It was so much fun. Um, you know, it was, it was hard work for sure, but the feeling was okay. Hey, we know. We know that you have the capability of being an Air Force pilot. Now we want to turn you into a helicopter pilot, right? So um, it was much more the focus on helicopter-specific employment, um, going out, landing in landing zones at night with goggles on, uh, in formation. I mean, it was it was really really fun stuff. It, it really, uh, and something that I really enjoyed about rotary aviation is is and still do is it's much more. Um, I guess much, much less forgiving in terms of your stick and hands capability. Um, you have to physically be a good stick and hands pilot to be a good employer of helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, it requires a lot more in- attention and uh, attention to detail in the actual flying of it uh, to, to do it well. So I, I really enjoyed that challenge. Uh, finished up with Fort Rucker uh, training, uh, decided I really loved the place and wanted to continue and teach there. So raised my hand to be a, to be a FAPE, uh, first assignment instructor pilot for those who don't know what that is. Um, it was, uh, again, great time, loved teaching, uh, especially loved teaching helicopters, uh, loved being out in Southern Alabama, landing in fields in formation with my buddies. I mean, it was just really just a blast of a time learned a ton. Uh, went, uh, about three years there. Um, it was time to, time to go, time to go on to my next assignment. Uh, I knew what my follow on assignment was going to be. So I knew I was going to go CV 22s, uh, probably to Herlbert field, which ended up being the case, um, going into CV 22s, uh, was an interesting change of pace. The CV 22, uh, schoolhouse, uh, was, you know, took, took a long time to get through. They, they send you to new river, North Carolina to train as a, uh, basically like a Marine Corps co-pilot first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, so they're based, they're teaching you the basics, like how do I fly this thing and not crash it? Um, and it's, you know, it's a handful of an aircraft. The V 22 is a very complicated aircraft, right? Um, <clears throat> and there's nothing else that flies like it yet. Uh, so the, a lot of it was just like, okay, get these guys to the point where they can fly it without crashing. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. Send them back to the Air Force. And now, you know, at Kirtland, uh, where our our full uh, qualification training was for the CV-22 was much more of a lengthy process. Um, And it was tough. Uh, And they made it tough intentionally um, because there's a lot going on and they wanted to make sure that you had the capability of keeping it, keeping it all straight in your head. Mm Mm-hmm. And at that point, you're training alongside uh, flight engineers as well. So, a lot of your student sorties aren't just you as the student, right? You've you've got a, a whole crew, and half the crew is students, and half the crew is instructors. Um, so you have a student flight engineer, uh, you know, being being chewed up and spat out in the back, <laughs> and you're up front getting chewed up and spat out in the front, right? So, um, it it introduces a a, a good Crew dynamic, it you know bonds you to your crew. Um, the share, you know, shared suffering, uh, kind of bonds you to your crew a little bit. But um, I digress. The I f- finished up training at Kirtland, uh, went to Hilbert Field. First operational assignment uh, was 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 great. Uh, I I enjoyed. The people uh, that I got to be with, my my peers that kind of moved with me there, and and we uh, and you know quite a few of them I knew obviously at the schoolhouse at that time. We all came up together as co-pilots. Um, being with them was awesome, and uh, you know learning more, getting more proficient, uh, learning more operationally relevant skills. Learning, you know, hey, why why is it that we're doing the things that we're doing, uh, and then. You know, we were like, okay, so we went out to um, uh, to Yokota Air Base in Japan, started standing up a unit, which was a, a whole fun, uh, fun bundle of challenges on its own, and uh, worked hard at that for for four months. Uh, it was a you know, quote unquote deployment at that point. It was they they had no groundwork. Uh, or very minimal groundwork, basically. So we were kind of just figuring it out as we went. Uh, what are we going to do with this CV twenty two fleet that's suddenly here? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, got bounced around the Pacific a little bit during Japanese uh, election seasons. You know, we weren't we weren't super popular from okay. a political standpoint there. So uh, got got bounced around and then and uh, finally came back to Yokota. Um, I left back home after four months. Um, you know. Basically, right away went to my commander's office and said, "Hey, you know, if we're sending a unit out there and we're going to stand up a unit out there, I want to be part of it." Um, Sorry about that. (laughs) No worries. Uh, (laughs) I really liked what we were doing out there. First of all, I love Japan. Uh, Japan is amazing. Uh, Really liked the um, the hey, we're you know we're kind of out here with very, I, I wouldn't say minimal guidance, but we're out here. Trying to figure stuff out right now, and that is something I wanted to be in the middle of. Like being a plank holder, which is what they call someone who stands up a unit, um, uh, is is really immensely satisfying. Uh, so that was something I wanted to be more a part of. Um, so it m- sounds like there's ample opportunity in the CV22 community, as yeah. you alluded to before. Yeah, there there is um, to to try new things. The it was more of like actually. Establishing a presence okay. where there wasn't anything before was more of a it was was a unique opportunity that does not come around that often, in a in a deployed environment absolutely, but a a a base an established unit yeah. with heritage and all all the things that come with a, a flying unit it's like almost a stateside flying unit uh, is a very unique experience does not come around very often um, so. I jumped on it and I would recommend if you ever get the chance or any of your listeners get the chance, you know, they say, Hey, we're, we're going and we're going to stand up this flying unit somewhere. You should really think about going and being a part of that. Um, you're probably going to fly less. Your focus will be less necessarily on flying and, and there'll be some more admin weight to, to push and pull. But you get to see how, like you really get to see how the, uh, uh, the sausage is made when you have to like figure out, you know, you're like kind of making your own rules a little bit, not, you know, not so far as stuff being illegal, but you really are okay. Like, you know, where do, where do all these guidance documents come from? Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, where, how do, how does one, how do you into a squadron, (laughs) right? Like is, is, uh, not something you get the chance to figure out, uh, organically very often. So I would, I would recommend it in the future for anybody. So, um, so yeah, they they said okay, Drew. Yeah, they they need guys to volunteer to go out there and uh be at the V22 unit. So we hope, you know, they sent me sent me back with my family uh only a couple months after I got home and and which was fantastic. It was exactly what I asked for. Um and lived in Tokyo for 3 years, which is just amazing. Hmm. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing experience. A lot uh, of sushi. A, yeah, a, yeah lot a lot of sushi. A lot of sushi. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, more more than I probably should. Have had. <laughs> Uh, and flew around the Pacific uh, and, and flew around Japan, which is just the most beautiful country uh, in the world, in my opinion, uh, just from a pure like aesthetics and like mountains and like, Oh man, just, I'm
0: sure the architecture looks pretty cool. It, it does.
1: Yeah. And, and it's just, it, they, they take very, I would say the Japanese, like take very good care of their country. Like they take very, very good care of their public spaces everything is very clean, very safe. Like there's virtually no crime there from, Hmm. from a Western perspective, there's virtually no crime there. Um, It was just all around like great place to be, man. Great, great with kids, great with kids. Um, And just like having, you know, having kids there, having a family there was fantastic. Loved it. Um, Got towards the end of my assignment there and, you know, eventually the, uh, long days and working catches up with you. Um, and so I needed to kind of take a step back and take a take a breath from from the operational pace uh, and ask my commander if I could go back and teach uh, teach somewhere. Uh, there were some what we call white jet tours, which are you know sort of non-operational flying tours, a lot of training bases, pilot training, that sort of thing, uh, that had opened up in AFSOC, which doesn't happen very often. Um, so I asked to come to the air force academy to, to teach, uh, to fly. And, uh, I got lucky enough where, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matt hum- Humphrey was, uh, uh, the commander at the time looked at my packet, saw, saw something in there that he liked and, and, and hit the higher button. So that brought me here. Uh, I was a glider instructor for just, just under a year, uh, and got halfway through the assignment here, realized that, you know, uh, my I was coming up on the end of my service commitment and had to, had a decision to make the you know look and looking at the whole picture between my <clears throat> my job satisfaction, my excitement and fun of like teaching and, and molding cadets and flying uh, the glider and my future operational prospects uh, in the V22 going back to that community and also all of the opportunities on the outside that were, available to me, uh, I made the decision to separate. I didn't take it lightly. It certainly was a lot of, um, there were a lot of, uh, you know, stressful conversations, sleepless nights and prayers, um, thinking about whether or not to, to go that direction. And, and ultimately I decided it was the best for, for myself, for, for my family and for my, my career that I wanted to, uh, you know, to go down. So, um, that's sort of me in a, in a nutshell, uh, I just gave you my entire career. So Sweet. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I got
0: And I got you here before you, I remember when I emailed you about this whole thing, you, you took a little bit to respond. I'm like, oh shit, he probably isn't going <laughs> to But then you emailed me back and you're like, hey, I haven't, I've been, I'm separating. I haven't used my Air Force email in a while. I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> so do you think you could get into the mission set of the Osprey? What day-to-day kind of looks like for you?
1: Yeah. So the, the CV 22 specifically the Air Force variant of the Osprey, um, is, and you guys have your pro books. So d- day, night, uh, infiltration, exfiltration, resupply of uh, special operations forth- forces. And, um, you know, pretty decent at the whole marginal weather thing as well. Um, I will say that a lot of the day-to-day is training for that mission set, right? So, you know, when we're not at an exercise or we're not doing an actual operational um, mission, your, your day-to-day is spent training for that, mm-hmm. um, either preparing for the next exercise or the next operational mission where you're going through rehearsals of that thing specifically. Um, it is sort of a... The, the more experienced pilots uh, pick out sort of mock training profiles for you to go through um, in, in practice, basically at home station, honing your skills. Um, so you'll have, you know, the more senior pilots will say, hey, we're gonna do this, this, and this tonight, um, and this is gonna be the mock mission, and this is the name of your pretend team that's gonna be on board. And so they'll create an entire scenario that you fly to, and and the idea is you're able to get all of your currency items, which are your sort of required, legally required items, so that you can say you're still proficient in the in the mission set and the flying of the aircraft. But also improves your operational understanding, improves your skill set. Maybe that you know more senior pilot that's in the that's in the formation that night uh, is uh, trying to bring something in or teach something that. May not be written down on paper. Maybe something that they just saw when they were on an operational mission, and they want to they, they use that as an opportunity to, uh, you know, spread that that sort of knowledge base to the mm-hmm. rest of to the younger guys, essentially. Um, so, and and what the day to day, so that that's the day to day like home station training. Uh, I would say on average I was flying twice a week to three times a week. Um, and then on the off days, I was either preparing for the next flight or studying or trying to get my workbooks done, which, you know, you, you'll have these. And, and every community does a little bit different. Some people call them coloring books. Some people call them, you know, we <laughs> call them CMR books. Um, but you, you have books of knowledge that, like, post-initial qualification, you're expected to, like, continue getting a base level of knowledge so that you can be a proficient operational pilot in that, in that unit, mm-hmm. with that unit's mission, Right um so the 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 sort of off time the not actively flying time is still a lot of it is focused on flying and learning about things that will help you employ the aircraft or understand the mission right um and also hey you're an officer right so you're going to have an office job uh so a lot of a lot of time spent on the administrative side on the office side uh doing doing that work as well so mm-hmm. that's sort of your day to day i would say initially as a co-pilot it's like a you know 60 40 maybe a 70 30 split favoring flying or mm-hmm. flying related um, jobs and and the moral of the story here is as you get more senior as an officer and this is i would say this is true across almost every community flying community that I'm that I know of is the the more senior of an officer you become the the lower that ratio is favoring flying so you're going to do less and less flying you're going to do more and more um, admin duties of some kind. I will say the break-even point is, is for me, was probably young captain, young to mid-captain. Mm-hmm. Um, though I was a FAPE and then, you know, I, I got to the V22 community a little yeah, bit a later little in my off, career, yeah. so it's a little thrown off, but, you know, typically mid-captain when you hit, you know, young to mid-captain when you're like hitting flight commander and they're starting to look to push you to some other jobs, is where you find the break even point of like half and half flying and, and admin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that point, uh, I, I think a lot of people find themselves doing in terms of your average work during the day is going to be more admin related than flying related. Um, that's, yeah, that's your average day to day at a, or at least, it, you know, it was for me at, at the flying unit. Um, do you think you could run me through an example of one of those missions,
0: whether training or operational? I don't know if you yeah sure say um, talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was uh, take team A to spot X. Um, mm-hmm. So a, a common you know training profile might be uh, you know take off from um, you know take take off from your home base, go to an LZ where you're going to pick up. Team X, uh, and then it'll be a certain number of, you know, people weighing about this much. Uh, You would take them to point Y in the sky, and they would jump out. So you do a military (laughs) free fall. Um, And, you know, sometimes this was notional, and sometimes, you know, your local PJs or STS squadron would be like, hey, we need jumps for currency. Can you guys do jumps tonight? Yep, absolutely, let's do it. Cool, this is our jump zone. Um, So you'd sort of figure out, Either notionally or, you know, really doing it, uh, uh, an airdrop, uh, personnel airdrop, military freefall. Uh, you would go off and loiter uh, in a location that is away from the objective area, right? Because you don't want to, as they call, burn the objective. Don't burn the objective. Don't well, fly let them know over. the area. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't let the you know the adversary or enemy or really anybody uh, know where the ground guys are right you Mm -hmm. don't want to draw you don't want to draw attention to the team that you're trying to support um so move off the objective and then sometimes it's hey go a lot of times it was okay hey now it's time to go hit a tanker right because you know the team says they've budgeted this much time to do whatever objective that they're looking for um so hey we're gonna we're going to go get on the tanker with that being the expectation, you know, missions always change. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is, Hey, okay, go get fuel, stay on the tanker until the team calls you or, you know, be ready to pick them up in a rapid fashion. If something happens and someone gets wounded. So sometimes we'll go through at that point, a, you know, immediate on infill, uh, call for Casavac. Um, so a lot, you know, a lot of times we'll hang out, uh, hang out close by and then be ready to respond to a Casavac. So, practicing going through a nine line that's being read over the radio, reading it back, you know, passing that information to potentially a doctor in the back. If that's something that your notional scenario has. Yeah. Um, Do you often know what's going on with like the special
0: operations unit, what their training mission is kind of, are you briefed on that? Or is it
1: kind of like shot at you in the middle of the mission? No. uh, Are you talking about for, for like these training profiles specifically? No, you'll you typically know ahead of time. Okay. Um, with the training profile a lot of times and it depends on how you know how much time people have to like make it a fully fledged scenario Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes you'll have like full paper products as if, if this was a real mission it'll just be all pretend names and places uh and they'll you know they'll hand you the packet and say okay here's your mission tasking go do um sometimes it is a okay hey we're gonna pretend you know hey let's pause the scenario now we're gonna pretend someone got hurt let's go do this specific mission task that we need to get better on or proficient on. And then okay. we'll resume the scenario later, right? So you have, a, and it, and it's very much um, incumbent on the flight lead, the the instructor, or whoever is leading the formation. And, and almost always, CV-22s are employed in, in, in formation. Okay. Um, typically the leader of the formation's prerogative to say, hey, this is the kind of training we're gonna get tonight, this is the scenario that we're playing with. Um, and then, so yeah, practicing aerial refueling, because that's a specific skill set, uh, and uh, sometimes we'll do you know threat reactions, right? So you could sprinkle in some, hey, at this point you're engaged by this kind of threat, this is how we're gonna practice defeating this kind of threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that gives you the opportunity to get into aerial gunnery, uh, which is a skill set that obviously our flight engineers Uh, need to have so building either building that into the scenario or sometimes we would say hey at the end of the night we're going to go hit the range Um, and there are specific restricted areas that are built with like aerial gunnery ranges that are pre-approved that you're going to go to stateside especially um, that that's where all the shooting is done and a lot of times they'll have like old Decrepit tanks yeah. or you know retired armored vehicles out there, so your gunners can practice shooting in something. Like yeah. That. Um, so that was uh, that was something we did, um, and then you know you'll, you'll you'll pass the controls back and forth between the two pilots up front uh, quite a bit, uh, and and a lot of times you'll you'll do your initial infill um, or. In this case, if they're jumping in, then you're gonna practice your exfil. So, all right, we're going into exfil the force, uh, and then we'll pause the scenario and say, okay, now we're just gonna practice approaches. <laughs> and you practice, you know, half a dozen approaches into this landing zone, just over and over and again, over again, to the point where the actual flying of these approaches becomes like muscle memory, and you can spend a lot more brain power on hey, what happens if this goes wrong right now? Or what's going on in the radios, right? Because real, real world, the radios are insane. Like any, you know, any pilot will tell you operationally or even in exercises which are trying to emulate these operational scenarios, uh, the radios just go nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to have enough brain power to fly a very technical approach to a very specific spot and not bungle it and also talk to your own crew members at the same time, and also being able to listen to four or five radios at the same time is like very, very saturating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that takes practice, a lot of practice, hundreds of hours of practice to to feel like you're getting proficient at handling all of that at once, right? Um, and it's it's very difficult. And the people who do it well feel like superheroes when you look up <laughs> to them, like. People like Jake Hall, uh, or, uh, he's I think he's a Lieutenant Colonel by now, um, who's an AOC here, okay. uh, who's a CV twenty two guy. Like absolutely, when, when, you know, when I was a co-pilot, I looked at him like he was a superhero because he could do you know, he could do all of these things. Just like the mental capacity of being able to do all of that well um, is incredible. To like watch the senior guys who had a had a ton of experience do do it well was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a ton of respect for those guys. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's I don't know. I think I touched more or less on all the parts that I can remember of. Oh, um, and you could you could sprinkle a lot of different things into your daily training mission, right? Like you can sprinkle in some. Hey, we're going to do water work today, so we're going to go do night water hoist. So you know, it's a little bit of a different skill set um, when you're doing work over the water, especially at night because you can't you can't see. You have no motion cues. Mm-hmm. Everything just, just flat. Yeah. yeah, everything just looks like a black hole, especially mm-hmm. on a dark night. It looks like a black hole, right? So um, a little bit more of a focus on your instrument cues. Inside, there's a hover page uh, in the V22 that kind of shows you your, You're like your AGL, uh, position. Yeah, AGL, yeah, it, it does have a radio altimeter as well, but it's more your lateral position over the ground okay. relative to a waypoint, and you have velocity and acceleration cues that are telling you not only where are you right now, but what is the aircraft doing? Like, is it traveling backwards? Is it traveling sideways? And and so you, you learn. can't tell when you're in there. Uh, not over Holy the water. Crap. Yeah, not over the water, especially at night. You you, it's very difficult to tell if you're drifting. Um, yeah. If, if you're moving backwards, moving sideways, because the you know, first of all, the water's moving, right? So you have no stable frame of reference. Um, and if it's dark at night, you know, the water just looks like a giant black hole. Yeah. Like you 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 have no frame of reference for motion. So. Um, that is something that you'll you'll discover when you go into pilot training. Uh, for those of you who do pilot training, um, uh, unusual attitude training and spatial you know spatial disorientation is what they call it when you essentially lose your orientation spatially. I guess that makes <laughs> sense, right? Uh, <laughs> um, you it's pretty unsettling. Like the first time you get spatial disorientation, it is it can be incapacitating because your brain basically just ceases to know where you are in time and space. Uh, and you still have to function, right? Like you still have yeah. an aircraft to keep um, to keep right side up. And, and so you'll see, um, you know, unfortunately my, my understanding is like that That was a huge part that played into the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash, right? You had a guy that was not well-trained in instrument procedures. Uh, and this is all, you know, this is all just from me watching some analysis video and stuff. So I'm I, I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert on this uh, particular crash. But uh, I will say, it seemed like there was a lot to do with spatial disorientation. And you had a pilot who went into the weather when he shouldn't have, uh, didn't know, you know, lost orientation of which way was up, did not rely on his instruments, and ended up upside down mm-hmm. uh, in a helicopter, which is, you know, unless you're like the Red Bull guys, and, <laughs> and it's like clear and a million out, you, you don't wanna be upside down in a helicopter. That's a very uncomfortable place to be, So, uh, so yeah. So that's night water hoist, uh, do night work uh, or over water work. Um, if there's an opportunity, sometimes you get the opportunity to go uh, and train on ships. Uh, so train to aircraft carriers. Um, now, a lot of you know what some of your listeners might not know is the U.S. Navy has a ton of air capable ships that aren't like what you think of when you think of a an aircraft carrier, right? You when you say aircraft carrier, everybody thinks like giant floating flat airport mm-hmm. uh, that is massive and floats around right so there you know there are different levels and variations of uh, air capable ships down to some of the destroyers have um, have flight decks on the back of them that are much smaller just uh, like a helo pad? basically yeah um, so those are those are things that we train to uh, and then you know the I would say the you know the mid grade air air capable ship is your you know your helicopter assault uh type carriers which mm. are they look like a little you know a miniature super carrier they look like a miniature uh, big nuclear aircraft carrier okay a um, lot more Marine Corps on those typically mm. uh, and then you have your your big boys uh, your CvNs um, so we train to and have knowledge of each of those uh, and can practice doing that and that you know that's much more deliberate exercise because you have to schedule time with the Navy they have you know deck time that you have to not rent from them as much as you, you have to. You have to schedule them, and mm-hmm. that all goes through joint offices. So there's a lot more um, pushing push pull yeah. It, yeah, exactly. So like when those opportunities <clears throat> come up, that becomes the priority very quickly mm-hmm. um, because you have currency to maintain on ship landings. Uh, so when those opportunities arise, like the people are on it, like they already know exactly who needs it, mm-hmm. who wants it, and and who's going to go. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of your average. Osprey training sortie and like that's gonna be your good ninety ish percent of your flying. Mm-hmm. Um, now getting into the ten percent is your I would say your your exercise or operations or whatever, um, and those and I say that, you know ninety percent of of your flying. But obviously, if you get deployed, that that flip flops quite a bit. Um, so I'm talking about your your steady state at home. This is what it looks like. Um, when you go to exercises or whatever, um, things can change quite a bit, right? So there was an exercise that I went to that was um, more search and rescue focused. So all of a sudden we were search and rescue. We mm-hmm. were the search and rescue activists, yeah. right? So we, you know, the we, we took all of the skill sets that we'd been practicing and applied them in different ways. Uh, and there were some new skills that, that we had to learn um, as well. So, you know, having... A 10 circling you overhead, <laughs> telling you visually exactly where to fly, is like not something I'm used to, right? So doing that for the first time was uh, was like a new skill that I had to pick up. Why would they and, need to tell you where to fly? Why so, couldn't you just do it? So yeah, the um, there is part you know part of search and rescue is this is this idea of you have a you have a, a, a rescue team, right? You have the team, the ground guys, the PJs on the planes. On the rescue vehicle, the RV, you have you know guys overhead that mm-hmm. are watching you. You may have air cover if there's an air war going on overhead. You you know there's a lot of different ways of making this happen, but um, the way we were doing it was you know we had A tens, um, Sandy A tens. So Sandy is a qualification that that A ten guys get uh, f- that is specifically oriented towards rescue uh, and rescue control and escort. Okay. Um, so those are the guys that are escorting the rescue vehicle, uh, which was us. Uh, to the objective and back. Um, so having, you know, that being the case, these guys are looking outside, looking for threats, right? Looking for ground threats primarily. Um, and they are guiding you visually to where they want you to go, uh, which is a, which is a definitely a It's <laughs> a kind of like a quarterback, like yeah, they can see yeah, more of the field. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's a great way of thinking about it. They're a little bit higher. Um, and, and also they have the, you know, they've been sort of given the authority to run the rest, the rescue show mm-hmm. um, more or less from the, from their perspective. So um, that was immensely and that was just like one exercise was like that. So multiply that across lots of different exercises. There were some exercises where the point was to work with the host nation and just like build relationships and do the mission sets that we already were proficient in doing mm-hmm. um, but do them with a partner uh, and build Build knowledge and relationship with that partner. So there were a couple ones that we did with Japanese when I was there. Um, we did uh, when I was at Yokota. We did one uh, with uh, Thailand. We went to Thailand. It's called Cobra Gold. Big exercise happens every year in Thailand called Cobra Gold, um, and and a big part of that was, you know, working with the Thais, the royal Thais, to um, to improve their proficiency, improve our proficiency in international operations and cooperation. So, mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: so we, we, you just discussed how you had some Pave Hawk and Black Hawk pilots come up to you. What are the difference between multi rotor mm. rotary aircraft versus single rotary?
1: Yeah, so um, just multi versus single rotor aircraft, uh, the I think the big the big difference there is uh, is your lifting capability uh, is is more. You have more rotors, so like the Chinook. Has a immensely higher lifting capability than than the Blackhawk does, for mm-hmm. example, just just raw numbers on paper. Um, so there there's a there's quite a bit of an advantage there, and with with more lifting capability, typically comes bigger fuel tanks. Bigger fuel tanks means you can stay in the air longer. Being in the air longer means you have longer legs. You can reach farther places. So mm-hmm. um, that's very like basic layman's explanation of like multi-rotor versus single rotor Um, in terms of like tilt rotor, which was, you know, a whole new ball game. uh, The differences there are, are immense. Um, So the Osprey takes both of those and yeah. So the, the Osprey really takes the, um, the the flexibility of a helicopter platform to land and take off to and from, uh, you know, practically anywhere. To, and and combines that flexibility and that lifting cap vertical lifting capability with um, a sort of a turboprop aircraft, which which you know like a C one hundred and thirty, which has um, much longer legs, longer range, faster, much faster. Um, So, for example, you know when I was in the Huey, our typical cruising speed was about one hundred knots, ninety to one hundred knots. Our typical cruising speed. In the Osprey point-to-point, uh, point, we were usually going around 240, uh, so a a very very significant speed difference. Uh, and if you talk to anybody in the in the rescue community, a lot of times, and this is just you know, just talking rescue, uh, that speed makes a huge difference in terms of your capability of recovering someone or mm-hmm. uh, handling a a, a Casavac type situation, your ability to take them to a higher tier care facility um, to get them cared for that time matters a ton um, so being, you know, being able to move very quickly matters uh, quite a bit in that regard uh, and then you know, likewise with um, uh, defeating threats right if you have a, a threat on the ground that is looking to shoot down aircraft the minimum time you can spend overhead that threat is better right mm. so fa- you know, being faster in that regard is better um, means you get to uh, and, and this was a big one is hit your objective in one period of darkness. Now uh, SOCOM and AFSOC in general uh, talks a ton about um, or, or orients themselves I should say quite a bit towards this idea of getting an objective completed in one period of darkness. So the, the less time you can spend traveling from one place to another and the more time you can spend focusing on getting the objective done is, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would encourage any of your listeners to, to look up what happened with Operation Eagle Claw. Uh, this is, a, a, unfortunately, a failed operation uh, trying to rescue some hostages, that the complexity of that was required and because we had to bridge multiple periods of darkness, um, there was a day uh, in there was that when they landed and were refueling? Yep. Yeah, refueled on the ground. Basically, they they created this sort of base in the middle of the desert. Um, and un- unfortunately, some service members lost their lives uh, in that operation. And, you know, reducing that complexity, right, that the Osprey, they say the Osprey was sort of born out of the ashes of Eagle Claw in in the fact that, hey, we've got this we've got this platform that if we had this platform back when we were trying to do that mission, we could have done it all in one night and we could have done it without Mm -hmm. landing in the middle of the desert. And that would have made a, you know, that, that could have been the deciding factor between, you know, success and failure. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I I would say those are the two big things. Honestly, if I could, if I could boil it down to just two things that make the Osprey immensely important, significant, unique, um, more than your average rotary platform is the speed and range. Speed and range is everything. Um, and my time spent, uh, especially in the Pacific, where, you know, people <laughs> people look at the map uh, and they look at the Pacific and they go, okay, that's like decently big ocean, right? Like, no, dude, it is, it is humongously different than the <laughs> Atlantic Ocean in terms of space and how far everything is spaced apart. Um, so having something that is fast land long range capable that can land vertically in the pacific specifically is is a is a game changer uh, out there so at least i i personally do. So.
0: well there you have it major drew whitney and his experience as an osprey pilot this first episode delves into the piloting side of his career but he's got lots more to discuss in the follow-up like some personal examples of resourcefulness working in SOCOM and some of the decision calculus that goes into separating. Thanks for listening. Cormac. out.